You're listening to Episode 7, Part 1 of the Child Life On Call podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries. The list goes on. And then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. To see that there, you know, are eight cases in medical history of a condition. I mean, it was like no way my son has this. You know, there's it's it's statistically just impossible that my child could be the ninth person in the history of you know medicine in the world, documented medicine in the world, um, to have this condition. Um, You know, everyone's heard of a handful of, you know, genetic conditions, you know, Down syndrome, for example. Um, But, you know, I'd never thought, man, what if my baby has mandibuloacral dysplasia type B? You just heard Mandy, and today she will share her personal story about having a son with mandibuloacral dysplasia type B. This is a really special episode because I've known Mandy for over 25 years. We grew up outside of Dallas in the same neighborhood, attended the same schools, and somehow indirectly, after many twists and turns, have ended up about an hour from each other here in Texas. I'm incredibly honored to help provide a platform for Mandy and Nolan to share their experiences, and I know that because of what she reveals to us today, there will be an incredible impact on families who feel isolated by their illness. We will hear more from Mandy in just a few moments. If you are a fan of this podcast, make sure you are following along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for the latest updates. I'd also really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes so we can make it easier for other parents and listeners to find us. I've decided to divide Mandy's story into two episodes for a couple of reasons. First, I want to make sure you have the time to listen to this episode in its entirety. Every single word Mandy says is important to hear, and I don't want you to miss a thing. Secondly, I want you to come back next Monday with having told at least one new person about this podcast. Whether it's a friend, family member, coworker, or another random mom you meet at the park, these stories are important for the world to hear. Children and their families often cope with illness and silence without many people understanding what it is they go through. And by sharing this podcast, you will be doing your own part to help families who need to hear these stories feel less alone. So thank you for doing your part to share. So without a moment more of my rambling, let's just jump into Mandy's story. 
Mandy met her husband Mike in Augusta, Georgia, while they were both in the Navy, and Nolan is their first child together. Mandy starts off by talking to us about her pregnancy and Nolan's delivery. So he was my first child, and my pregnancy had been, I mean, just textbook. Everything was perfect. Everything was tracking right along. And then at 35 weeks, I woke up and my water had broken. So we went to the hospital, you know, see what's going on. They discovered he was breached and told me I was having a C-section that day. So um, pretty nerve-wracking day, but it turns out he was five pounds, eight ounces at birth, which is pretty good for being five weeks early. Um, But it was very overwhelming because I was not prepared to give birth that day. Um, I hadn't even packed a bag for the hospital. Um, And there was really no reason why my water broke five weeks early. So, you know, I immediately start questioning myself, you know. Before my child's even born, I'm already questioning, you know, what have I done as a mother that could have caused this? There was no um, infection or anything that would have caused it. So I immediately start thinking, you know, was I working too long hours in the Navy? Was I too stressed out at work? Or, you know, what was going on? Um, He struggled to gain weight pretty much from birth on. Um, So... I continue to question myself and why isn't he, you know, why isn't he gaining weight? What am I doing wrong? Um, So he was born with his condition. We did not know that at the time. Um, We didn't know he was at risk for a genetic condition. In fact, Mike and I had never heard of his diagnosis, but he had several anomalies that they noted at birth. You know, every time a child was born, they write on the paper, you know, their APGAR scores and then anything that's at all, uh, not average or normal. So, you know, I get this paperwork is sitting on the tray and I'm reading it. Um, and, you know, they've written all these things that are pretty meaningless to me as, as a first time mother. Uh, you know, he has long, thin fingers. I, I don't know what a newborn's fingers are supposed to look like. Um, a small recessed jaw, prominent eyes, one ear was lower and posteriorly rotated. All of these things that they're hard to read as a mother because it's someone else clinically looking at your child and saying, these are the imperfections of that child. But there's a whole bunch of things that didn't really point to anything. You know, it's a constellation of symptoms, much like his condition is, but, you know, they don't really add up to anything obvious. Um, The head of pediatrics happened to be there the day I delivered, and he agreed to take him on as a patient, which he he wasn't taking on any patients at the time and, you know, put in a special request to allow my insurance company to let him follow Nolan and I kind of knew immediately you know why is the head of pediatrics taking on my son you know you're reading all these things you you just kind of I I just kind of knew something wasn't right I'd wanted to breastfeed but he had trouble latching due to his jaw and then had trouble gaining weight so despite trying everything I could possibly think of we counted every quarter ounce he consumed um of formula fortified expressed breast milk. I mean, we had, he went to physical therapy weekly, pretty much from birth and every week he was weighed in the hospital. So constantly tracking, trying to figure out, you know, how much weight did he gain week to week? But he had gained enough right after birth for them to send us home. And in fact, because he was born at 35 weeks, he was never sent to the NICU. Um, So we went home, you know, things continue on. He, uh, He had torticollis which is stiff, a stiff neck at birth, which is actually way worse than it sounds. It sounds kind of 
you know, not that big of a deal, but he had very severe. So he was going to physical therapy once a week, pretty much from birth, trying to, um, in his case, he looked pretty much 90 degrees to the right at all times. So it was physical therapy, slowly trying to get his face, you know, his head centered, looking forward. Um, so over the next about eight months, he had kind of a host of seemingly unrelated symptoms. Um, at his one-month checkup, his the head of pediatrics mentioned, you know, at some point we'll probably want to send you to genetics, um, which caught us off guard. But then, you know, it's also like, okay, you've opened the door to this. If we need to go to genetics, we want to go now. But, I mean, it was it was a shot through the heart. I mean, it was an indescribable feeling that, you know, you're looking at your first baby and to you, he looks, he looks perfect. Sure, he's a little small and, you know, whatever else, but to you, he's perfect. And yet this doctor who's been practicing for 20 years and has no doubt seen thousands of newborn babies can look at your son for 10 minutes and know there's some sort of genetic anomaly going on. At the time that Nolan was born, both Mandy and Mike were stationed in Hawaii. She said how lucky they were that the military provided amazing health benefits and that their hospital did not spare any expense in providing them with whatever doctor or specialist they may need. The military hospital he was born in offered several pediatric specialties, including genetics, neurology, developmental pediatrics, dental, nutrition, and she said that was a good thing because they saw every specialist you could think of. He had, you know, a constellation of symptoms that were all kind of across the board, and one by one, you know, they weren't really related as it seemed. So we kind of tried to explain each one away, like, okay, he has a small recessed jaw, but, you know, no one in our families really has prominent jaws, and he had failure to thrive, but, you know, he was born five weeks early and struggled with feeding from the beginning, and, you know, he's in daycare at six weeks old, so maybe if I had been staying at home with him and been able to feed him around the clock instead of, you know, a caretaker that has other children to, to tend to, maybe he would have gained weight better, and, he was behind on his milestones, but the doctors told me when he was born that he could be two years old before he fully caught up from being born five weeks early. You know, when you wrote to me and we had talked about the failure to thrive thing, and I think your point, you're like, why is it called that? It's a, it's a horrible thing. And I've working in a hospital, I've always thought that I'm like, why isn't it failure to gain weight? <laughs> like, just because they're not gaining weight, well, it doesn't mean they're not thriving and full of passion and emotion. And I've I've always thought that. So the fact that you wrote that and then felt it too really makes me feel like we need to change that. <laughs> Absolutely. There, I mean, of all the things going on with my son, as a, as a mother being told your child is failing to thrive, is just heartbreaking. So in addition to Nolan's unbecoming failure to thrive diagnosis, Mandy reveals a bit more. He had bone dysplasia, which sloped shoulders and shortened clavicles and... The shapes of them were different, but I mean, what does that even mean? It means something to a radiologist, but it, it didn't really mean anything to me. Um, he began developing mottled skin, like think skin patches um, like you'd see on, on an old person. So we referred to dermatology. Um, my husband took him to that appointment, which was probably the first appointment I missed because I had something at work I couldn't check out on. Um, but my command had been very accommodating all along to let me take him to the physical therapy appointments once and then twice a week um, to see all these specialists. Um, so it was really odd that I, I hadn't, that I wasn't there. But uh, Mike took him in and she looked him over and you know, she was 
I think she was a resident. She hadn't been a dermatologist very long at all. And she handed him a post-it note with mandibulolacral dysplasia type B written on it and said, I looked over his file before he came in. And now that I see him, I think this is what he has. So Mike brought it home and I was pretty taken aback. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine it was a dermatology appointment. Right. Of all of the appointments where we thought we might get answers, really, we thought they were sending us there more so to tell us if there was anything we could do for it. So Mike comes home from a dermatology appointment, the first appointment that Mandy had missed, with a post-it note that reads something both of them had never heard of before. And they do exactly what all of us would do, but are told we shouldn't. We did what we had promised ourselves not to do, which is Google it. Um, (laughs) Everybody I've talked to on the podcast has said the exact same thing. We know we're not supposed to Google it, but we Googled it. And that's, I feel like, what (laughs) everybody does. You know, when we had a name for it, I felt comfortable Googling it at that point. But it was before, you know, I'd find myself starting to type into Google, small recessed jaw, failure to thrive, muddled skin, which of course, I mean, it's crazy. And everyone at some point has typed in, you know, I have a fever and nausea and the chills. And nope, WebMD says you have the bubonic plague. So I wanted to stay away (laughs) from, you know, that type of, you know, issue. But we Googled it and read literally everything that was on the internet about it, which was about three articles. Because we came to learn that there were currently... Well, we didn't know this at the time, actually. There were four, there are four other people in the world living right now with his condition. Um, and two of them are brothers in Pennsylvania, and two of them are sisters in Japan. And the brothers in Pennsylvania had a, have a foundation set up to raise money um, and awareness for the condition. So, you know, poured through their website and then read about two or three medical journal articles that had been posted online. Um, and, you know, I was a math major in college. I To see that there, you know, are eight cases in medical history of a condition, I mean, it was like, no way my son has this. You know, there's, it's, it's statistically just impossible that my child could be the ninth person in the history of, you know, medicine in the world, documented medicine in the world, um, to have this condition. Um, you know, everyone's heard of a handful of, you know, genetic conditions, you know, Down syndrome, for example. Um, but I, you know, I'd never thought, man, what if my baby has mandibulolacral dysplasia type B? So we read everything we could about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it was his appointment was on a Thursday. So the next Friday I called the geneticist more times than I care to admit, um, but didn't actually end up getting through to him until Monday. Um, so we had all weekend to stew over these, these articles and, you know, compare the list of symptoms to what Nolan was showing. Um, and it seemed like an actually reasonable diagnosis based on the symptoms, just couldn't get my mind past the, he would be the ninth person in the world to ever have it. So the geneticist kind of dismissed the dermatologist. Looking back, I'm not sure if he didn't like that a dermatologist threw out this crazy rare diagnosis that might actually be right, but he was really stuck 
on a few of the symptoms didn't apply to Nolan. So he was very dismissive. And when while all of this was happening, the army decided to deploy him overseas, uh, which was really defeating at the time because, you know, to me, Afghanistan does not need a pediatric geneticist, you know, to go over there and be a commander of a you know medical battalion, something that, you know, any type of medical professional could do. Um, but wasn't up to us. So he turned over all of his cases to the pediatric neurologist. Um, I'll call him Dr. P. Uh, he was absolutely incredible. He changed our lives. Um, there's also a nurse, I'll call her nurse J. She worked with the geneticist and she was our probably greatest advocate to Dr. P. Um, he really listened to me and listened to our concerns and decided, you know, with the nurse's input and with ours, he said, okay, I'll put in for this test, which I should back up and say, um, this test that we were asking them to put in for was the most expensive test that that most expensive genetic test that hospital had ever done. So he had to, you know, write a letter justifying this $12,000 test for a condition that only eight other people in the world had ever had. Um, and, you know, put his name on it as a doctor saying, you know, he thought that this test was necessary. Um, but he did. And we had the blood drawn and they sent it out to one of the two labs in the world. Well, maybe not the world. He sent it out to one of the two labs in the country um, that tests for it. And then we waited. Wow. Wow. I mean, that that is a lot to take in. And, and thank goodness for Dr. P. It's almost like had the geneticist that wasn't deployed, would he have done the same thing? Or do you think because you were rerouted to Dr. P.? I mean, I'm sure at some point it may have been done, but I wonder if it was done sooner because you were with Dr. P instead. Do you ever think about that? You know, the, I do. The, the geneticist had agreed to put in for the test, but just didn't do it before he left. And in all fairness, he was getting ready to go from Hawaii to who knows where overseas. He had a lot, and I'm sure you know, he was not given a lot of heads up as the military likes to do. So I think it was not something that was high enough on his radar, um, you know, to to do. Um, but really what I marvel at is that a, as it turns out, a dermatologist is who came up with the diagnosis. I mean, of all the dermatologists in that department, we were randomly assigned to her. And it just so happens that she did, when, when she was in medical school, um, she did a case study on progeria, which mandibulolacral dysplasia type B, or as shorthand, MAD type B, um, is an a, it's basically an atypical form of progeria. So if we didn't happen to get assigned to her who happened to, you know, study progeria in, the, in medical school, who knows if we ever would have gotten a diagnosis. Um, and actually the nurse had had a patient before with um, mad type A, which is slightly more common, but I'm talking probably, you know, we're not talking. Actually, I don't want to say how common because I'm not entirely sure. I will just jump in here really quickly and give you all the statistics that I was able to track down. 
According to rarediseases.org, approximately 40 cases of mandibuloacral dysplasia have been reported in medical literature, and fewer than 10 of those cases are MAD-B, which is what Nolan has. The blood test was taken and the expensive test was sent out, and now Mandy will tell us what happened when she found out that what that young dermatologist wrote on a sticky note was actually Nolan's diagnosis. So they sent the test off and said it would take about six weeks. <laughs> Longest, six weeks is a really long time for and a you know, blood it's, test. It's really <laughs> crazy that you can be diagnosed with MADB from this test, or they have had cases where the test did not show it, but the symptoms were so in line with the condition that the doctors made that determination on their own. And the geneticist had told me, if the results come back negative, I'm dismissing this as a possibility because I just don't see overwhelming in his, I don't see overwhelming evidence from his symptoms to make that diagnosis. So we'll put in this test and we can cross off the list basically when the results come back. And you know, the, the pediatric neurologist, Dr. Dr. P, he has, he didn't have experience with these types of, you know, cases. So he's just telling me the best of his knowledge, you know, he agreed. Probably it's unlikely, but it's possible. So we'll go ahead and put in for it. So, you know, it's like we all, this test was sent away with all of us thinking he definitely could have it. But then again, statistically, it's just so unlikely that, of course, it's going to be negative, even though we all kind of thought, but it's probably going to be positive because it makes sense. So of all of the symptoms that he had had come up, um, most of them, like I said before, I, I tried to kind of explain away. But part of the condition is the last distal of his fingers reabsorbs into the um, into the finger. So they develop bulbous fingertips. And that happened um, late May, which is really what ended up pushing me to really push to get the test put in. And that was kind of, for me, when I knew deep down inside, like, all right, so all of these other things, maybe I can come up with reasons, but there is no reason that his notably long, thin fingers at birth have changed into what they are now. So I think both my husband and I knew that this is what he had, but we weren't going to talk about it until the results came in. Um, so that summer, you know, we lived in Hawaii. We decided to go on a cruise to Alaska. Um, and we brought Nolan with us. And, you know, I just, just one of those feelings you get, you know, as a mother, I just knew that after this trip, things were going to be different because the six weeks, the six week mark was like the last day of our cruise. So we were going to get results one way or another shortly after getting back. Um, so, you know, we really enjoyed that, that vacation. And I really tried to just not think about it too much and just, enjoy my son while there was no diagnosis, there was no labels, it was still possible, you know, that it could be anything. Um, but, you know, on that trip, we noticed he was developing severe sleep apnea. He would stop, he, he'd always snored a lot, but he would stop breathing in his sleep. And it was very alarming to us. So the day after we got back from the cruise, I actually I had to take him in for physical therapy and I, you know, asked Dr. P to come across the hall because he'd fallen asleep after his therapy and listened to him. And he immediately admitted him to the PICU 
Um, you know, as parents, we always second guess ourselves. Am I making too big of a deal of this? Is it, um, you know, is it really an issue or am I just being overprotective? Um, but he looked at him and said, nope, he needs to go to the picky right now. And he needs a ventilator when he sleeps. So because we live in Hawaii and everything takes forever to get done over there, we actually ended up being in the hospital for three and a half weeks waiting on this ventilator. Yeah. So, you know, okay, he has sleep apnea, but this is the, there's a solution and it's a ventilator and they put him on the ventilator in the hospital and he was breathing again in his sleep just perfectly. Um, so did not, you know, we weren't happy we were in the hospital, but hey, he has a problem and there's a solution so we can handle this. And of course I'd ask Dr. P if the results had come in and they hadn't. So my husband and I basically talked to our commands and we set up kind of a little rotation of who's going to be up at the hospital with him. So, you know, we can both be there, but both get a break too. Um, and it was a couple days after he was in the hospital, I was finally starting to feel like, okay, we have this under control. Um, and I left the room to go get lunch and was walking back to my room and ran into him in the hallway. And he asked if Mike was up there too. And I said, no, you know, he'll be back up later this afternoon. So, um, He's like, okay, well, you know, the results for the test came in, so I'll come by later to discuss them with you. And my heart just dropped because, you know, we had all discussed that, oh, it's probably not going to come back positive because it's just so unlikely. And, I mean, privacy laws aside, if it had been negative and he'd seen me in the hallway, he would have just said to me right then and there, came back, it's not what he has. You know, we'll talk about what the next step is later. But he didn't. He told me he was going to come by my room later to discuss the results with both me and my husband. So I, you know, felt like the world around me froze. But I, I just looked at them and said, they weren't negative, were they? And he, I could tell, felt awful because he had not intended to deliver this news to me in the middle of the hallway alone. But I don't think he thought I was going to put together all of these pieces in that moment. So, I mean, I stood there pretty, you know, I stood there in shock, not really knowing what to do next. And I think he, you know, he picked up on that. And he said to me, go back to Nolan's room, give him a hug, keep loving him like you always have. This diagnosis doesn't change him or who he is. And it was honestly the best advice anyone could have given me. I know he didn't mean to tell me in the hallway, but, you know, he really took care of us. And I did. I walked back to my room and managed to keep it together long enough to get in and close the door and looked at him sleeping peacefully on his ventilator. And, just, you know, I broke down and, you know, I waited for my husband to arrive that afternoon because I didn't want to call him and have, you know, tell him while he's driving so you know he came up to the hospital and um he walked in and I was you know curled in a ball in a chair clearly I've been crying and you know he just you know what's wrong and I just said he has it the the test came back and he has it and he understood It's hard to imagine what it would feel like to hear that your child is the ninth person in medical history to have a diagnosis. And now you may understand why I wanted to make sure that you try to make time to listen to Mandy's story from start to finish. The timing of the launch of this episode is ironic, or not so ironic as Mandy puts it, 
and that this morning on August 14th, Nolan is scheduled for his second surgery in attempts to alleviate his obstructive sleep apnea. Mandy points out that this just confirms the ongoing process of a life with a child like Nolan. Please send good thoughts and prayers to Mandy, Nolan, and their family as he goes through the surgery and recovery process. Mandy, I know there will be lots of people thinking about you and Nolan today. We will hear more from her next Monday when she talks about what living with a child who has Mad B is like, how undeniably amazing Nolan is, and how she and her family cope with it. I'd like to thank Green Photography for the beautiful pictures of Mandy, Nolan, and their family. We can't thank you enough for taking the time to give Mandy and her family these gorgeous pictures. If you are near New Braunfels, Texas, go book Green Photography now and follow her on social media. I will link to her information in the show notes page on social media. So friends, go do your homework and recommend this podcast to someone new this week. I know you want to hear more from Mandy, so subscribe and part two will be available next Monday morning. Thanks for listening in.